Welcome to the Dead Pixel Podcast. This is the podcast home for all the people that work in the archival and production world. The artists and technicians that keep production going long after the shoot is finished. We're engineers, colorists, restorers, administrators, cinematographers, editors, animators, designers, and filmmakers. We work in both sound and visual, in analog and digital. The one thing that we share in common is that we spend some, if not all, of our time working in dark rooms, working alone. Finally, we get to share our stories here on the Dead Pixel Podcast. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Lee. Hi, Susan. Oh, hey, Ryan. Hey, Lee. Hey, Susan. Hey, Barry. Hi, Lee. Hi, Susan. Hi, Ryan. So uh, Susan's joining us today, uh, along with Barry Sonnenfeld uh, on the Dead Pixel Podcast. And uh, Susan is hopefully going to keep us out of the weeds and make sure we don't say anything too technical. I'll keep you on track. Don't Please. Um, and we're, we're happy to be talking with Barry Sonnenfeld today, who uh, you may have heard of. He, I mean, I, we can go back to the early days of being fellow New Yorkers, but uh, you then became a cinematographer and a director and a photographer along the way, I assume. And... Um, Made a few little movies here and there. Uh, Blood Simple started your career, I'd say, uh, in the movie business. And now we're, years later, you've had some pretty big blockbusters that you've made too. It's interesting going from Blood Simple to Men in Black. I mean, when you look at that trajectory, it's pretty big. Um, do you ever think about that? It's kind of crazy. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, what happened was I was really happy being a cinematographer. You know, I shot the first three Coen Brothers movies, Big, When Harry Met Sally, uh, Misery, some other stuff along the way. And I was really happy doing that. And one day, Scott Rudin, I was finishing up uh, uh, Misery, in fact. Scott Rudin sent me the script for Adam's Family and said, read it, meet me, I want you to direct it. You know, so that, that was... Uh, Interesting. I think the reason Scott asked me to do it was because he was a head of Fox, president of production of Fox, when I shot Big and when I shot uh, Raising Arizona. And he, he sort of saw that I used the camera as a storytelling device more than just a recording device. So I looked at all the other DPs that had become directors. Gordon Willis directed Windows. Uh, John Alonzo, who shot Chinatown, directed FM. Bill Fraker, another brilliant cameraman, directed The Legend of the Lone Ranger. And basically, they were one and out. Hmm. And I wondered what went wrong, because these were truly brilliant cinematographers. And in each case, they moved up their camera operator to DP, which meant they really didn't want to give up the camera, Right. They wanted someone they could push around. Because who wants to deal with actors? You want to deal with camera, because that's what you know. So I decided if I was going to make a real chance at doing this, I had to hire a, a cameraman that was so much better than me that I wouldn't be saying, shouldn't the 10K go over there? Or, you know, and so I, I met Owen Roisman, who had shot men, you know, shot Tootsie the French connection, you know, uh, one of the greats. And I took him to lunch and I, I asked him to shoot the movie. And I, I said, I only want three things from you. One is 
will you use the slow stock, which was a Kodak stock called 5247, which was very fine grain, very rich, very saturated. And everyone was using the high speed stock, which was 5294. That sucked. It was magenta and mauve and brown. It had no depth to it. it. And Gord, and what's weird is Owen asked me the very question I would have asked if someone asked me the same question, which was, he said, will you, will I ever have to pan? And I said, no, you will never have to pan because I never let anyone pan. I, the, the Coens and I went to see Scorsese's Gangs of New York. And at the end, Ethan said to me, why was that so bad? And I said, too much panning. It was that simple. Uh, and the other two uh, things I said to Owen is, I want Angelica Houston, who's going to play Morticia, to have her own motivated light. I said, I don't care if she's standing right next to a window. She should look like a Harelp photograph, you know, with a Charlie Bar darkening her forehead and then only her eyes sort of lit up. And, and he said... I love it. Absolutely. I get it. I love it. And, and he did an amazing job shooting her. And the third thing I said is I, I want to pick the lenses and I want to design the shots because that's what I did when I was a cameraman. I see things a certain way. I'm a wide angle guy. I don't use long lenses. And Owen said, great, less work for me. So <laughs> I think I owe a great deal of, of, of my success as a director to Scott Rudin, Dee Dee Allen, the brilliant editor of uh, of Adam's Family and many other movies, Bonnie and Clyde and Reds and Slaps Shot, and also o Owen forcing me away from the camera and forcing me to hang out with actors. Mm -hmm. So that's a long answer to your question. No, it's great. Uh, I, yeah. Did you ever feel like, you? I mean, when you've been directing, that you just want to tell them what to do as a cinematographer, or do you just hold back? You know what? Uh, I've been lucky to have a lot of good cinematographers. I still design all the shots. I still, whenever I say cut, check the gate, we used to say check the gate. Now we don't because we shoot <laughs> on video and we'll get into that. Yeah. Uh, but as soon as I say moving on, I'll say 21 on a finder. And the the first assistant will hand me the lens, and I will line up the shot. And the D and I tell the DPs ahead of time. It's just the way it has to be, and they're happy just to be lighting. Occasionally, when it comes to lighting, I'll say, "Does she look like she needs a little bounce, or are her eyes a little dark?" But I won't. You won't tell them what to say, do. I won't tell them what to do. Yeah, and and I'll say things to them that any director would have said to me when I was a cameraman. Mm. Is it too dark? Is it not dark enough? Is it going to look like night? That kind of stuff. It's so respectful. Yeah. Do you still uh, require them to use 21s and wide lenses? Yeah. Uh, uh, you talk a lot uh, about that in your book, and I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that a wide lens invites, in a very unconscious way, the viewer into the room with the actors, that somehow you feel that the camera is closer to the actors. And there's this, an amazing energy to the 21 millimeter. You know, uh, someone moves just a foot or two feet and they can go from a medium shot into a close up because it, 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 it has a very specific, um, 
uh, line of sight. While with telephoto lenses, there's no energy. Someone could walk 50 yards and they won't change size if you're using a 500 millimeter lens. In fact, uh, Will Smith had just come off of Enemy of the People when we were doing, I guess, Men in Black 2. And he said, you know, with Tony Scott, you don't know, you don't even see the other camera. The camera is so far away across the street, you never know there are any cameras. And the way I shoot, the camera's right in their face. Oftentimes, they don't even see the other actor because um, the camera's blocking the view of the other actor. Wow. I was talking to this, this cine- Canadian cinematographer a while ago, helped me with one of his movies, Michelle Brawl. And um, we brought him in, and I was thinking while I was watching it the whole time that he, there's so too many zooms. And, you know, I thought, well, maybe this was a technique and I didn't say anything. And then he finally said to me, like in the middle of it, he goes, I just don't know why we did so many zooms. And, (laughs) you know, I guess at the time he was trying something, but, you know, years later, you know, there's basic things that just work and don't work. The other thing is, uh, if, if their training is mainly television, television, uh, television is more of a zoom medium because you don't have the time to lay track and it's so much faster. And you also, uh, you know, you don't have to pick the right lens. You just put the camera somewhere and then you zoom in. And you also, when, when you shoot with zooms, you, you end up shooting close-ups too tight. You go, should we just be a little tighter? Uh, and it's always a mistake. I look at the the shows I shot and I directed, and if I ever have complaints, it's that, boy, I wish I was a little bit wider on that close-up. Uh, I don't even like close-ups. I think close-ups are really important when someone says, you killed my mother, and not, <laughs> I'd like an apple, please. <laughs> you know, the the... The reason that we're even doing this podcast uh, is when I spoke to you about remastering a movie recently, um, you said, aren't you going to do this in 4K and HDR and all that stuff? And I, and I said, well, I mean, the 2K version looks really good and Blu-ray's HD. So you're like, well, I don't even like HDR and I don't like four. And that's the impetus for the podcast where I said, can you come on a podcast and talk to us about why you actually hate those things instead of everybody going why they love it? Uh, HDR is very controversial with filmmakers. I, I don't even know if it's a, if it's something that they don't like because it just looks too bright or too contrasty or what. I mean, what's your take on this whole thing, which is here to stay? HDR and 4K are marketing tools by uh, streaming services. They're not creative tools. Uh, let's talk about 4K for a second. Okay. So... All the streaming services make you shoot in 4K. In fact, <laughs> Apple and Netflix, and maybe they've changed, but Apple, I just did something uh, this October, November. You can't even shoot with an Alexa because an Alexa is a three-point, it's an airy, it's the best uh, uh, digital camera, but it's 3.7 and not true 4K. And they literally will not let you use that camera, even though it's the most filmic of all the digital cameras. So what do you do? You take a 4K camera, which doesn't uh, make actors look good. Uh, You can't use certain fabrics because it morays. Because, um, I mean, literally half of the stuff we choose, we have to throw, we test and throw out 
because of the tie mores or the jacket mores, you'll see very little <laughs> tight checked uh, suits in, in any movie these days because of 4K. So what, and since the actors don't look good because you're seeing every pore, what do you do? Cameramen are either buying up old cook lenses that have no reflective coatings, or they're putting so much filtration over the lens that they're making it look worse than 2K because no one wants it to look. So technically you can market it that we shot it in 4K. Let's just not tell anyone that we use crappy lenses or put enough glitter filters in front of the lens to diffuse the sharpness of 4K. In fact, what I think 4K is great for are sports. For the first time in my life, I can see a hockey puck go into a net, which totally I've never agree. seen in my life. Yeah, it's amazing. I love sports in 4K. <laughs> um, that actually brings up something that I, I mean, we can get back to this for a second, but while we're here, um, in your book, especially uh, when you're talking about your early life, you talk about a lot about your love of sports, which especially when it starts off with Hendrix and the Miracle Mets, uh, those two things are very dear to my heart. That wasn't alive for the Miracle Mets, but that you got to attend that game blew my mind um, right. for 20 bucks too, which is wild, but amazing. Right. Um, have you ever shot any sort of sporting event? Because it sounds like you've attended a lot of them and like, you know, you any uh, interest in it? I have not shot any, uh, I've shot little bits in movies, you know, tiny, tiny little bits, you know, in Raising Arizona, Nathan Arizona Jr., when he grows up, catches a football. Um, but uh, uh, no, I, it's funny, I don't, I think I would get too caught up in the game and I wouldn't, <laughs> I would be good at it. Also, you know, you can't shoot sports with wide angle lenses either. No, certainly not. Uh, uh, but so, 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 so your first problem is 4K is a marketing technique, right? It, it has nothing to do with making good images. Then HDR has become the latest new marketing technique. And that's not going to go away either. And here's the problem with HDR. And let's talk about it, uh, technically for a minute. It stands for high dynamic range. I used to shoot a lot of still photographs with HDR because I, uh, on, on my Nikon and my Lumix, you could press a button and it would immediately take nine photographs, normal, one, two, three, and four stops overexposed, one, two, three, and four stops underexposed. And then what you do is you combine those images. So what it lets you do is, let's say you're shooting outside in Vancouver on a sunny day, and it can happen, there can be sunny days in Vancouver <laughs> during the summer, and you're in the woods. So your shadow area is like F1.4, and your sunny area is F16, you know, side lighting the trees. So how do you expose that where you'll see any shadow detail in the, in the lower areas and not blow out the, the bright areas, or if you expose for the bright areas so they don't overexpose, your shadow areas will be black. So with HDR, you combine that. You use the underexposed bright areas to bring that down, and then you overexpose the dark areas so you can control the contrast and see way more detail. And for still photographs, it's kind of great, but it doesn't look real. 
It looks surreal. If you ever go on Zillow and look at any uh, images of real estate, you'll see that the furniture is normal, but outside the window, it's not blown out. It's That's because they're using HDR and combining those images. It's a great tool, but it's not for everyone. And it's, and it's very much not good for most cinematography. And the problem is what HDR does is it says, I'm going to help you with your contrast issues, right? But sometimes it tries to help you when you don't want contrast, like the first season of a series of unfortunate events, which we shot for Netflix was beautiful. We uh, released it not in HDR. And it was muted and it was always overcast. And we wanted a very narrow palette and we didn't want contrast and we didn't want to expand that and make it colorful. Then Netflix said, we're only releasing everything in HDR from now on, mm. again, for marketing reasons, having nothing to do with aesthetics. So in the second and third year of a series of unfortunate events, we spent so much more time because we were fighting what HDR was trying to help us with. HDR was saying, oh, poor Barry, look how muted and pastel-like this image is. I'll help him. I'll make it contrasty. I'll make those red pops. I'll make those lights that seem so, so subtle. I'll make them bloom and blow them out so that you have an expanded range. So once again, I mean, listen, Lee, I think you and I have talked about the, the ultimate bad idea was cine motion. And, you know, the guy I for years, I would write about that in my Esquire column. I once was at the Sony showroom on Madison Avenue and 55th Street. And I looked at every television set and they had all been set to cine motion. But I didn't know that. And I, I said to the salesman, what's and they were playing Titanic. I said, what's wrong with every television in this showroom. And he said, <laughs> you mean because it looks like a soap opera or like the making of the Titanic? And mm -hmm. I said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, watch this. And he turned off. They all have different proprietary names, Cine yeah. Motion, Cine Flow, whatever it is. But it's motion smoothing? Yeah. It's motion smoothing yeah. and it can turn anything into video. It could turn the conformist into <laughs> a soap opera. I mean, it's just. <laughs> it's the worst it, thing that's ever happened to TV. And it's by it default really on too, which is amazing to me. Oh, it takes it takes fifteen twenty minutes to go through. You got to Google it. You got to turn, turn it off. And then you go into hotels where they only give they don't give you the original OEM remote. <laughs> yeah, right, so and you can't you change can't, it. You can't change it. Yeah. Well, the new version of CineMotion is HDR mm -hmm. and 4K. And again, 4K for sports, love it. Uh, but it's not it's not an answer. And for the studios, the streaming services to think that people won't subscribe to Netflix if everything's not in 4K yeah. or isn't HDR is nuts. I mean, there's probably a handful of people that do think that, but I would say the majority of them don't give a shit. And the ones that do think it are wrong because HDR and 4K is not necessarily better. It can be, it can be worse. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're struggling with that now with how to present HDR on classic films or let's even take Blood Simple. I, I, you know, you, you uh, I don't think you saw that test, but uh, when, when Joel and Ethan were in to review the color after you did the pass, 
they looked at uh, a pass of HDR and it was at the very beginning and it was like, we look what we can do. You know, like everything right. was bright. And I just, I, they, I asked them what they thought and they were like, eh. I mean, there was really no reaction. It was more just like, I don't think they liked it, but they didn't really say so. But I think a lot of people just want to like show you what you can do with it. Like we can make a highlight go up to 4,000 nits. No right. one looks at, you can't look at 4,000 nits. It's not, I mean, for those who don't know, nits are the, the basic structure of how hot something can go in the picture. And 4,000 nits is ridiculous. You don't see 4,000 nits, in, and unless you look at the sun directly, maybe. Right, right. <laughs> no, it's, uh, hey, uh, Bill Hader, I spoke to Hader recently, and he said he loved uh, listening to Joel and Ethan and, and myself on the, uh, you know, audio added on Blood Simple because we just bickered and were mean to each other the entire <laughs> time. I made fun of their directing and writing and they made fun of my uh, camera operating and lighting. So it was, it was fun. It's a great piece. It really yeah, totally. is. And you guys Super look like fun. you're really enjoying doing that. So yeah, a fresh way to go about looking at a film again. You know, I, I had lunch with uh, Joel and Fran a couple weeks ago and outside. Uh, and uh, and Joel, once again, just like they did with uh, uh, Blood Simple, wants the director's version of Miller's Crossing to be shorter than than the original. And, and I think that's great. I mean, first of all, every time you see the director's cut and it's longer than what was released theatrically, you always go, oh my God, now I know why it was released theatrically with that version, because the director's <laughs> cut, they were always putting back the crap that shouldn't have been there in the first place. Yeah, we won't mention any names, but yes, there's a few that come, some big movies that have come to mind, yeah. Close Encounters? Uh, did he put, oh yeah, he did, but then he took it out again, I think, right? Well, I, I saw the version where, where Dreyfus goes into the spacecraft. Oh, right. I've never seen that. Is What nice. happens in there? Uh, he sees a lot of bright things and more of those. <laughs> oh, you mean like HDR kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah we should 4, put it HDR. Yeah, right. 4,000 nit aliens. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, so, okay, so we know you're feeling on 4K. We know you're feeling on HDR. What about um, like Atmos? That's a new way of listening to things. Are you? You know, it's interesting. Uh it's an interesting tool for sports. Uh, no, here, here's, here's my feeling. When I'm mixing, and I, I worked with brilliant mixers, Paul Otteson, who's won many Academy Awards. He did Hurt Locker and, and, uh, and other shows. Um, so my problem is uh, that a lot of Atmos and a lot of these other new systems allow you to move the sound around in ways I don't think they should be moved around. I really think that they're disconcerting and uh, and maybe they might work in a scary movie. I've never seen a scary movie in my life. I've never seen The Exorcist or The Shining or anything like that. So maybe, <laughs> maybe in a scary movie where you want, like, what was that great movie with Richard Crenna who jumps out um, Wait until dark. Wait until dark. I saw that at Radio City Music Hall, and 5,000 people stood as one <laughs> when you think he's dead and he leaps up and tries to grab her. So I would say it has its place, but it's, I think, 
it will be overused in the same way that a lot of technology will get overused. I sound like I'm really old. <laughs> and I think we should go back to like hand crank black and white movies. And I don't feel that way. Do you want to eliminate sound and go back to like silent films? I mean, uh, no, because uh, uh, in fact, you know, uh, more and more sound is so bad actually on television. And I think the sound recording is so bad that we more and more we have to watch shows with subtitles. <laughs> and and I hate that because I kind of want to watch yeah the, the the screen. It's just overused, like a lot of these other technologies are. Yeah, so, I think when people come up with good applications for some of these things, it's great. Like I, I've been watching a lot of HDR at home. On a, I finally traded in my plasma for, and I loved the plasma. I really did. It was only HD. It was fine. It looked great. It had a little burn in here and there, but then I finally switched to OLED to watch. HDR in 4K so I could actually be educated about it. And almost all of it is bad. I mm. I took me, I watched a show on Netflix called Lupin. And it was the first show I thought, I kept saying to myself, this is the most tasteful thing in HDR that I've, that I've seen so far. Watch Coming to America 2 because it was prominently displayed as something I should watch. So I right. watched it. It was so bright. It was completely not cinematic. And I think right. that's the problem with a lot of the HDRs. They're, they're, they're just making it bright. So I agree with you. I hope that, uh, personally, I hope that it all matures into something, you know, 3D. People, you know, Vim Vendors used it well in Pina, and there were a few. I can't, there must be something else that was good in 3D, like, uh, did James Cameron make a 3D movie, Avatar? It was kind of interesting. I'll, I'll tell you the best 3D movie ever made in 3D, which was uh, uh, Men in Black 3. <laughs> Uh, uh, Men in Black 3 was a brilliant 3D movie, and I'll tell you why it's better than the Jim Cameron 3D movies. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Everything about Jim is distant and away from people and away from things. He loves getting into submergibles and going miles down to the Mariner Trench and all that. And if you look at Avatar, all of his 3D is at the screen or behind it. So there's no joy to 3D because he also uses, he tended to use slightly longer lenses. Right. On Men in Black 3, also the 21 millimeter was designed for 3D. It's the only lens that's 3D when you shoot it in 2D. <laughs> you look at Raising Arizona and it looks like 3D. Right? So the great thing about Men in Black shot on a 21 millimeter lens in 3D, although not native 3D, and we can get into a whole discussion about that, but no one cares about 3D anymore. But <laughs> uh, there's a scene with Will and Josh Brolin in a diner, and they're just talking. And because the camera is so close to them with a 21, and because I put the the actors in front of the screen instead of behind it, you feel like you are intimately in the room with these people. While Jim, Jim is a brilliant, brilliant director, but he's not as accessible a person yeah. as I am. Yeah, I and agree. because I uh, because I'm so accessible, because I'm so guileless, and I wear all my emotions on a sleeve, that's part of the whole twenty one ness of it. 
It's part of who I am and it's part of my personality is 21 millimeter lens, 3D, have the action take place in front of the screen, not behind it. Right. But 3D had its moment, but uh, I even had a Sony projector that projected in 3D, which was my home projector was, uh, I watched Thor in 3D, which was fun. Yeah. Well, occasionally it was fun. I I remember a couple of times enjoying it. What what what's your what's your setup now at home? What do you what what state of the art technology are you watching and listening with? Well, until recently, we just accidentally sold our home in Telluride. When we were in Telluride, we um, had a, a great Sony projector. We just got the new laser, yeah, the nine fifty, or it's. Uh, uh, the laser projector, which is very bright, which is good. And uh, all the speakers are behind the screen. You know, I had a woven screen and I had more subwoofers in that screening room than the Zigfield has. <laughs> How uh, many subwoofers did you have? I have six subwoofers, <laughs> oh the God. entire <laughs> length of the bottom of the screen. I have a 14 foot screen and the bottom of the screen is nothing but subwoofers. I think subwoofers are are underused as as a comedic effect. In fact, I directed <laughs> this this movie called Big Trouble, uh, and whenever anyone puts a suitcase down in a suit, no one knows it, but there's a, an atomic bomb in the suitcase. <laughs> whenever anyone puts a suitcase down, the entire room shakes with subwoofers. <laughs> And I would laugh and laugh whenever we would mix it. More subs, more subs. Uh, so I, I, I love subs. Also, the movies I do are even the action ones like Men in Black. They, they're all smoke and mirrors. There's not a lot of action. So for me, the subwoofer makes up for the mm. lack of action. Let's let's. We can have another big scene with gore, or we can just add some more subs. <laughs> That's what I do. It probably saves in the budget too, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it does. Subs are free. <laughs> what does Sweetie think of all the uh, technology? Does she like? Is she in, is she uh, excited about it when you show her like my new setup? Does she get excited? Uh, well, uh, it's funny you say that because we've moved to uh, British Columbia. We sold uh, Telluride, and now we're watching. At the moment, we're watching everything on an eighty-inch sharp. Aquos from nineteen from twenty fourteen, which isn't great, and it's in a den. And we do have this other room that will eventually turn into a screening room. But here's something where technology might be helpful, because it wasn't designed to be a screening room. The the the, the room is fairly lively, and I hear there are these new audio devices that will retone a room and sort of deaden it. And so I haven't tried it, but I hear that some of that stuff is decent and I might need some of that stuff. Ryan, what do so you know we'll about see. that? Um, it, it like artificially applies an EQ curve to your speakers and your receiver. Um, it can be effective. I experimented with it a lot um, when I was mm -hmm. setting up my own home studio for music and sound mixing and uh I found that at first there's a wow factor that was intoxicating, you know, kind of like right. the first time you see sports in 4K or whatever, which that doesn't really go away for me, but it's just like, whoa, holy, this sounds great. But then as I listened to more and more different material on it, I realized that it wasn't a, you know, 
fix all. It didn't really do what I needed it to do. And that the only way for me to actually make my studio sound good was to spend lots of money uh, with acoustic treatment. Right. So I'm sure you're right. Uh, I, I'm sure you're right. Uh, the nature of this room may not allow us to put up Sonics and that kind of right. stuff, or curve yeah. the walls, or uh, but but we'll see uh, uh, if if it helps a little bit. But I'm it, I'm sure you're right that it it becomes artificially. Yeah, there there is sort of I mean there's a sort of fakeness to it, you know, that yeah. becomes more apparent as you become more acquainted with it. But it does do something, so it's worth a shot. But you know, Owens Corning seven hundred three does a lot yeah, of great stuff right. too. <laughs> Uh, speaking about uh, another technology that did not go well for me or Sweetie is we went to see Deadpool in Vancouver and paid the extra money for the seats that move and shake. <laughs> the Dolby, Dolby Theater hat, yeah. yeah. I'll never do that again, man. Uh, not only did I leave the theater, we couldn't watch the rest of the movie. Once the fire started and people started to get burnt, I said, we got to get out of here. Yeah. So we, we left and I was nauseous for about a week. <laughs> I was literally seasick for about a week. Yeah, it was horrible. You know, we were looking for the switch to turn it off, <laughs> but it was too late. We yeah. had experienced too much. That's another technology that doesn't enhance what's great about movies, which are acting and script and story and pathos and all that stuff. I mean, it was, do you remember Sense Around? Earthquake no. was in Sense Around and they put those bait, those big subwoofers in the back of the theater? Well, that I agree with. Don't get me <laughs> wrong. Don't, do not say anything bad about a subwoofer, young man. <laughs> Um, and then there's, uh, you know, Cinerama, which was, uh, that was fun, actually. I remember, I think I saw Mad, 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 Mad World yeah, in Cinerama. Yeah, I did too. At and the Cinerama they, Dome. Yeah, and they also, the projectors had teeth yeah. to soften. It was a multi-projection. It was like really difficult to pull off and they needed special technicians. And Yeah, it seems like quite a feat that they were able to get it to work. Because it's all analog. There was no, there's no switches to help you do anything. It was yeah, gears. gears. Yeah, uh, really, it's crazy. Uh, so I, I I read the book, which uh, is called uh, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother. And if you if anybody's listening, they want to read something. It's it's super fun. I I I it's laughed great. out loud a lot. I had to put Me the too. book down and tell somebody what 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 you just wrote. And um, but there, other than the funny stuff, one of the things I didn't realize is that you finished shooting. Goodfellas for Michael Chapman. Uh, no, Michael Ballhouse. My, Michael, uh, Michael Ballhouse, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, uh, the le what happened was Scorsese and Ball Ballhouse, I call him Ballsy because he doesn't like it. Uh, um, well, you, you're uh, pissing off the German man, huh? I know it's a big mistake, especially when he was shooting Wild Wild West for me and uh, we weren't getting along. But any, I, I kept saying... Why don't you just aim your light meter at the monitor? Because he was never getting out of the chair to like go in. And, but anyway, that's another story. Um, so they were going over schedule, and Ballsy had an obligation. He had an outdate because he had he was going to go shoot postcards from the edge for Mike Nichols. And Ballsy and I, this is like around the time I was shooting. Uh, you know, big and and when Harry met Sally and around that era, 
we both had the same crew in New York, same grips, same electricians. So it made sense for them to call me in. So I shot the last two weeks, which was mainly all the uh, Ray Liotta as a young kid stuff. I see. I only had one night with uh, De Niro and he kept making fun of me, which was pretty surreal. And, um, and I'll tell you a story that's not in the book because it's too mean to ball house, but <laughs> I came in the last day of his shooting to see how he was shooting, you know, where he was putting lights, what kind of, and you know, I don't like to pan. I don't want to pan. Ballsy let Scorsese pan wherever he wanted to and do 360s. But but that's not good for lighting because if you're going to do 360s and stuff, all the lights have to be high and hung, and that's not the best angle on people's faces. So I watched Ballsy on the last night of his show, and then I was continuing the same scene. So I had to light it exactly the same way. It's a night shoot. I get done shooting. De Niro makes fun of me. I go home. I'm asleep. Uh, it's going to be another night shoot. And Thelma Schumacher, who is Scorsese editor for decades, calls me up and she says, it's like 10 in the morning. I'm sound asleep. I just got home at 5.30. She says, what the fuck are you doing? I've never met this woman. <laughs> she says, what the fuck are you doing? I said, sorry, I'm sorry. Who is this? She goes, it's Thelma. Oh, I, hi, Thelma. What's up? I just saw the dailies. They look horrible. I said, they look horrible. She says, they're horrible. I said, well, they shouldn't be. I mean, and I paused and she said, you're not trying to match Michael's lighting, are you? And I said, yeah. She says, that looks horrible. Do better. <laughs> so uh, that was like a wonderful moment in my life to be told that I shouldn't make it look like Michael Ballhouse's lighting. <laughs> well, I, I, I will say something that maybe is not really, it's going to not go over well, but like, I mean, when he did the Fassbender stuff, he was cranking them out. I mean, they were so fast. I think, is, would you agree that probably a lot of directors like him because he's fast? Yes, he was fast, except not fast in Wild Wild West. <laughs> uh, but that might have been because I called him ballsy. Yes, and here's, and, and here's the thing. Uh, A, most directors don't necessarily know good from bad lighting, but they know fast from slow. Mm. So, so there's, there's that. And I, I, I agree with you. I've never really, there are two kinds of cameramen. One kind is someone who lights the whole room. And once you're lit, you're lit. You know, they might bring a little fill light here. And Ballsy was that guy. I always lit each shot individually. In part, it's because of the wide angle lens. You couldn't light a whole room because you would see all the lights, but so I think Ballsy lit rooms, lit entire scenes. I lit individual shots. And it's a very different world. In fact, for many years, Joel and Ethan, after working with me, worked with Roger Deakins. And Roger lights very differently than me. He, he lights rooms. And he uses a, usually uses a softer, less contrasty and a softer look than, than me. So... It's interesting that Joel and Ethan went for me to a very different kind of uh, lighter. Mm. 
I think Bruno lights more like I do than Roger does. Mm. Do you uh, and Roger ever get together and talk about the Coens behind their back? Uh, no, Roger, I occasionally I'll be on the set and I'll go, uh, I'll be on a Coen Brothers set visiting and I'll go, hi, Roger. And he might give me a nod, but usually he just looks the other way. Uh, he's not socially uh, accessible, let's just say. His 3D movies would look a lot like Jim's 3D movies. Yeah. I had I, heard that uh, when he shot Kundun for, for Marty, I don't know what happened on that relationship, but I think like I think Marty was probably used to Ballhouse's speediness. Here are some movies in 3D. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, uh, I don't know what happened on that movie in so many other ways as well. Yeah, I mean, but, I, I haven't seen it since it came out, but I wonder. Like, I kind of want to go back to it and see how it looks. I'll tell you the good thing about that movie. I I have real problems sleeping, <laughs> and I sleep with headphones on and. Philip Glass's score, that's a real good one. If you can't sleep and you just got to find some way to help you through the night, that one can put you to sleep. So it's time uh, for bed, put on Kayana Scotsy. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's not going to push you to sleep. That score is way too frenetic. Well, like no, that's that it is because I tried it. You're right. I tried, <laughs> and uh, I had to. I had to go to Kundun. Yeah, it makes and then more sense. from there I went to Gregorian chant. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I mean, there are so many good things in the book. I like your, um, <laughs> I like your, uh, your neurotic, um, story about Larry David. <laughs> right. Um, share that well, with us. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Larry and I both worked with Cheryl Hines a lot and, uh, Larry and I know each other a little bit. We've been at Super Bowl parties at Rob Reiner's house and some other stuff. And we both pride ourselves on our neuroses. It's been very good for both of us. And uh, so we would always ask Cheryl separately, who's more neurotic, right? And Cheryl refused to answer. Of course, whoever lost would be outraged. <laughs> You're saying that he's more neurotic than me? How dare you? So anyway, Cheryl on The Letterman Show, because I was on The Letterman Show for uh, eight times and she was on Letterman and Letterman asked her about me. In fact, he called me psychotic as opposed to neurotic. And I said, no, that's just wrong. <laughs> and um, Cheryl said that I was the most neurotic person she'd ever well, congratulations. met. So I, yeah, I won her. <laughs> and then I was having breakfast one morning at, and across the room in New York City, this voice screams, Sonnenfeld, you say you're more neurotic than me, yet you're eating eggs with yolks, bacon, butter on your toast. What kind of neurotic is that? And it was Larry David yelling at me from across the room. Uh, I pointed out the bacon was burnt, which is the way I, I order it. So I was proud of that. But, you know, the first half of the book is sort of about my youth and about growing up in Washington Heights and how I accidentally went to film school. And then the second half of the book is mainly about some of the shows I worked on. There's a lot of Adam's Family and a lot of Get Shorty. And uh, if I do a sequel, I've got about 10 more movies I can write about. And maybe I'll write about HDR. <laughs> <laughs> the movie would be very interesting. Yeah, all right. <laughs> well, I, you know, uh, Warner Brothers Television and Rob Reiner ha uh, has optioned the book. Hmm. 
and we'll and Alan Zwei Bell uh, is writing a pilot, and uh, we'll see if anyone wants to do the Barry Sonnenfeld Call Your Mother streaming half hour comedy. Uh, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. I think yeah. it would adapt well. Each of those chapters is so funny and really nicely self contained in a way that. You know, I was just like, it would end and I'd be like, all right, what's next? <laughs> and it gets worse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're ready for that. We'll be ready for the sequel in about 10 years. So you can. Yeah, right. Up, okay. Update it. I did enjoy your, uh, your, your your discussion about Penny Marshall, too. She sounded like it was an interesting, there was an interesting working relationship. It was, it was not a working relationship. It wasn't a relationship. It was a lot of work. Uh, Penny was, Penny was really great about knowing comedy and knowing where the joke was, but she was almost allergic to being able to make decisions. And all a director's job is, is to make decisions. I tell this to people that are starting out becoming directors. If a prop guy comes to you and says, do you want the red folder or the green folder? You, they don't want to hear you say, I don't care, you choose. Even if you don't care, you got to say the red folder. Because, and, and it's through answering thousands of questions that, that that's what creates tone and style. Everything from how fast someone should talk to what lens to if it's a red folder and the green folder. So, and it's this weird accumulation of these thousands of decisions that lead to a movie. So the job description is question answerer. And Penny <laughs> was incapable of doing that. The first day of shooting, which was a night shoot, which is already hard because you don't have that many hours because we were shooting near the summer. She couldn't decide if Elizabeth Perkins should be a blonde or a redhead. So we had to shoot that scene, every angle except Tom's close-ups, twice in that one evening, which would have been a hard evening if we didn't have to shoot everything twice. And because it takes so long to switch hair and makeup over, you couldn't line up a certain angle and say, okay, now make her a redhead. We had to shoot the whole scene, every angle, masters, overs, close-ups, tracking with her as a blonde, and then start all over again with her as a redhead. Isn't that exhausting for the actors too? I mean, it's so irresponsible on so many levels. And right, and an actor on their first day is thinking, really, this is who I'm working with? Someone who won't even make a decision about that? And there were many other examples in that chapter of her just not being able to make decisions. And all I live for is making decisions. Mm -hmm. Like uh, the one around the house is at some point I'll say to sweetie, you know, if you put the butter in the second drawer in the fridge and that's when she says, you got to get a job. Because when I start directing her on how to put the butter in the fridge, we both know it's time that I've been home too long <laughs> and I got to be out there micromanaging other people and not my wife. Uh, that's a good place to end. I, I, I I, I hope we can do this again, and maybe when all these technologies are much more mature, we can discuss how much you love them instead of <laughs> dislike them. And uh, yeah, you know what? There, listen, there are 
there are great technologies. I mean, I, I, I'll tell you this, Lee. I mean, lenses are faster. You know, they're all now one four or one two lens, and all this these new LED lights that never existed. They're so much cooler. There's no heat. You can hide strips of them under dashboards. It's amazing, yeah. I will say what's happened in the world of lighting because of LEDs is truly revolutionary. Yeah. And it is a game changer. And we never could have shot a series of unfortunate events the way we did if we didn't have all those LED sky pans, every single light's on a dimmer. The uh, now, uh, you know, the gaffer would just say, uh, bring up 27 and 32. Uh, those are not, you know, everything's plugged in and they've got, you know, floor plans, 10% and it doesn't change color temperature. Mm. The guy who used to do that was Storaro. Storaro had lights on dimmers, but they were incandescent lights and the color temperature would change as you dimmed the light. And he didn't care because if you look at the conformist, He's literally moving lights. Venetian blind shadows are moving for no reason during shots. And we did the same thing on Blood Simple mm -hmm. to not nearly as good an effect. But so I think there is some great technology out there. And I think, especially in lighting, that's really changed everything. Are there movies that you go back to repeatedly just because of the way they look? Because they, I mean, like I watch Eight and a Half fairly often because I'm just, I'm, I really love those images. Do you have one of those or a few of those? Yeah. Uh, uh, my favorite movie ever is uh, Strange Love. And uh, I, I just love that movie. And it's, it's just such an example, except for George C. Scott, about how the comedy is everyone plays the reality of the scene. The scene is absurd, so the comedy is going to be hilarious. Scott occasionally goes over, overboard and he's the only performance I don't love in that movie. But for me, Strange Love is a perfect movie. It's lit beautifully. Ken Adam, who, who did the second, he did Adam's Family Values, mm. uh, was a, a production designer on that. Uh, so that's a movie. Joel and Ethan and I always watched The Conformist and Strange Love before we started any movie wow. just because well, mainly because we like those movies. We didn't learn much. Uh, the Conformist, actually, we stole a bunch of it uh, for Miller's Crossing. All the wood stuff. Near the end of The Conformist, there's a whole wood scene. In fact, there's a guy who warms his hand before unzipping his pants to urinate. And, we, and Mike Starr does the same thing in Miller's Crossing. Uh, so... Uh, I would say Strange Love. I would say, actually, 2001. I still love, and that's all front screen projection, which is just um, all the ape stuff and all that. Amazing. It's it's just amazing. Yeah, it's so ahead of um, Yeah, but I, I would say Strange Love is a movie that I've probably seen hundreds of times. Taxi Driver is my favorite Scorsese movie, but yeah, I would say Strange Love is is the movie I go to. Yeah. It's a good one. Uh, uh, Peter Sellers is so yeah. hilarious. I mean, I think he's always pretty great. Have you have you ever seen Being There? Yeah, uh, we watched it recently, uh, and uh, his performance is is it's fantastic. Amazing. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And it you know during the Trump administration too it was 
there are some similarities, actually. You know, exactly. <laughs> uh, hey, you know, uh, Sellers was supposed to play the Slim Pickens role also. Oh. He was supposed to be the pilot and uh, broke his leg. And uh, the rumor is that uh, Kubrick was happy about that because he didn't want Sellers to play yet another character. Oh. <laughs> By the way, if you look at a lot of the movies that I do, and Joel and Ethan do, especially the ones that we did together, you'll either see the recall code from Strange Love, which is P-O-E-O-P-E, or the CRM114 discriminator. Um, if you look at uh, Raising Arizona, there's a scene in, in the bathroom where the Snope brothers uh, are putting pomade in their hair and, and all that, and it says O-P-E-P-O-E, uh, in the mirror, you know, in graffiti. And I've done in a bunch of uh, movies I've directed, I've put the recall code in for Strange Love as well. So, Have you been in cool. any of your own movies? Many. Okay. I'm never good. In Adam's <laughs> Family, Gomez is playing with his train set and you cut into the train and there's a guy looking out the window and seeing Gomez's head go by, which is a famous Charles Adams drawing, which I stole. I'm the guy in that. Uh, in Get Shorty, I'm uh, wearing the beef eater costume. I'm a, a, a bellman when uh, David Paymer arrives. I'm, and in a series of unfortunate events in almost every episode, I'm a different painting. Uh, so uh, I have 14 large paintings of myself that my wife says, you, you know what? I know you, but no one else knows that you're trying to be funny and they think you're just an idiot. So she made me put all the paintings of myself in only my office. So you're surrounded so, by yourself in your office. Yeah, but I, and I hate the way I look, but in these paintings, I rarely look exactly like me, so I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, Barry. It was good to talk to you. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking soon about some movie you've I, I hope we get to work on one of your own movies that uh that you've directed soon i i would love that lee and in fact i think that paramount is going to do a release of adam's family and we're trying to find the entire mamushka and put the whole dance number back in mm. there but i would love to do that uh good luck to us all as we move forward it's gonna be an interesting year i can't wait to get back to a movie theater but uh you know what uh, I, I'm not going to go to a movie theater. Thanks. No, ever again or just pandemic? Uh, no, it's the sound. The subwoofers have been disconnected <laughs> because the theater next door was mm. playing a romantic movie and this theater was playing a Michael Bay movie. So they disconnected the subs. There's still Coca-Cola stuck to the floor. Mm. There's still bad projection. The sink will be all I what about if you went to say the arc light where everything's really well done would you go there to watch a movie if it were a comedy because sometimes I think comedies are good when you hear other people yeah, laughing sure. yeah so yeah uh, the next time I'm in LA uh, maybe I'll go to the arc light if they're showing uh, Dr. Strangelove <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll fly in for that you let me know when it groovy goes. groovy okay. thanks Barry yeah, thanks so much, Barry. Always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. <laughs>